Beloved saints, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, there Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, and then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king said, Come again to me on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So all Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned... They sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. And so ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on it this morning. 
Our gracious and merciful God, we know that you are great and therefore greatly to be praised. We long to know you better, to know your attributes, your character, and your works. And it is these that you've recorded for us in your word, that you've preserved through the ages, so that each generation we might come afresh to your word and behold your grace, your love, and your power. And so as we come to your word, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might behold its treasures. Allow us to gaze upon your beauty and your splendor. Humble us, encourage us, and strengthen us in Jesus Christ, Christ whom we meet in your word. Amen. Uh, you may be seated. Well, all around the world this morning, people are talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection from the grave, that Jesus Christ remained in the grave only to the third day and then was raised again. And we, we've heard the, that language from the scriptures, that if Jesus Christ is not raised, then, then we of all people are most to be pitied, that our, that our faith is in vain. We are a people without hope. And so, and so we understand, we get it as Christians, that, that the resurrection is really important. But sometimes we struggle to explain why it is important. What it represents. What it means and what it accomplishes. So where do we go to find out? Where do we go to seek the Bible's answers on, on how to understand and explain why it's important, what it represents, what it accomplishes? Well, 1 Corinthians is, is definitely a great passage, an excellent chapter on the resurrection, but it's not the only place. Uh, it, because, because there, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, I mean, chapter 15, verse 3, that, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day was foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. And so over the past several years now, we've been asking where? Where exactly does the Old Testament say that the Messiah would be raised on the third day? Because look through the whole Old Testament... Search all you want and you will never find a prophecy that says the Messiah will be raised on the third day. What you will find is many, and I mean many, passages in the Old Testament that deal with restoration of some sort on the third day. Many. And the message is this. It's always this throughout the Old Testament scriptures. According to the Bible, the day of restoration is the third day. Always. Always the third day. The Old Testament teaches us to look for restoration, restoration, for resurrection, for renewal on the third day. And so each year I, I take one of these passages and I look at it because each passage is unique. They, they have something in common, but they, they also have something that's just unique to each passage. Uh, each one tells us something different about what the resurrection of Jesus Christ would mean when it happened, why it is significant, what it accomplishes. 
Some are positive. They're, they're pictures. That, that They're examples that prefigure Jesus Christ, like Isaac uh, being given his life back as a sacrifice on the third day. Some are negative. Some are intended to illustrate what Jesus won't do, what Jesus won't be like. So, so a few years ago, we looked at 2 Samuel 24, and we saw in David's arrogance that, that he broke God's command and he numbered his army in, in an in a exercise of, of arrogance and hubris. And because of that, he brought death on the people. And we saw how the people died for the sins of the king for three days. Where Jesus is the king who will die for the sins of the people for three days. And so Jesus was set against that negative image of King David telling us that we needed a better king. And today we're looking at another negative example. It's that of Rehoboam and the three days that defined his reign as king. And Through looking at Rehoboam's story, we will see that the resurrection shows us that that Jesus did everything necessary to free his people from slavery and to give them eternal rest in his kingdom. That's what we learn through the resurrection. And we're going to see that through the the negative example of Rehoboam in 1 Kings 12. And and to see this, we need to understand first a little bit about Rehoboam's uh, backstory leading up to his ascension to the throne and the decision that he made as he began to rule. And it's against those, deci- that, uh, those decisions that we will look at the very things that define Jesus' rule when he came into this world. And so that's where we're headed uh, this morning. Uh, we'll look first at Rehoboam and then at Jesus. Now, to understand Rehoboam's story, like I said, we need to understand his backstory, a little bit about his family Uh, Rehoboam was the son of Solomon, a grandson of King David. Um, If anyone ever walked in a family shadow, it may be Rehoboam. Uh, But his father, his grandfather, David, um, came from humble beginnings. Uh, The youngest of eight sons, he was not just part of a somewhat obscure family, but he was sort of the forgotten son of that obscure family uh, and the smallest of the lot, not very uh, impressive physically. Uh, who can forget how when, when Samuel, the prophet of Israel, came to uh, David's family home, uh, he came to anoint the new king of Israel because Saul had sinned, and uh, he asked Jesse for his sons, and, and Jesse didn't even think to call David in from the fields to meet the prophet. Uh, Because David was the one tasked with watching the sheep. Uh, David was nothing important. Uh, Clearly, the prophet doesn't need to meet David, the little one. Uh, Everyone pretty much agreed that David was nothing special. Well, everyone except God. Because in that unimpressive shepherd out in the fields that everyone seemed to forget about, God saw something admirable. In fact, God told Samuel that David was a man after his own heart. It was David's love and care and and, um, nurturing and tending of the sheep out in the field that God saw 
as impressive. David was willing to serve the sheep, protect the sheep, even at great risk to his own safety. And he fed and he cared for and he tended the flocks. And it was that servant's heart that God was looking for in a future king for his people. Now the people wanted an impressive king, an intimidating king. They wanted someone who would strike terror in the hearts of their enemies. God wanted a servant, a nurturer, a shepherd, a father. And David was God's man. Now fast forward a lot of years, a lot of battles and a lot of heartache and a lot of strife. And we find David, an older man, established as king over Israel. And his instinct was to build God a permanent house, a temple, a house of worship. Because since the days of of, of uh, Moses, going on 400 years, God had dwelt in, in the tabernacle, a, a tent, a portable temple. And David wanted to build a nicer, more permanent house for his God. But God said that David had, had fought too many battles, shed too much blood, and God's house was about rest. It was about peace. And so building it would be for a man of peace. And its construction would have to wait. God told David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build my house, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the promise. It's an awfully big promise. Because it included so much more than just the promise that the temple would be built. God told David that one of his descendants would rule on his throne forever. That that he would be given an eternal, perfect kingdom that would outlast this creation. That would be the ultimate reward for the ultimate king. And that kingdom would be a sign of God's approval and acknowledgement that this was the worthy heir of David. This was the true king. And he would be everything David was and so much more. He would be a servant. He would be a shepherd. He would be a man after God's own heart. And his reward would be an eternal reign, a name above all names, an unmatched glory. And as David's son, Solomon, ascended the throne, there was a lot of expectation. Would he be the one? Would he be like his father David, but better? Would he be the eternal king? And Solomon started well. In fact, when God asked Solomon, what do you want? Name it, and I'll give it to you. Solomon could have asked for riches. He could have asked for power. But instead, he asked for wisdom. And God said, I'll give you both. (laughs) Solomon did build a temple, but it was made of brick and stone and wood. It was something that could and would be torn down. It was not eternal. And eventually, Solomon, despite his wisdom, 
would succumb to the temptation to self-service. He would give himself to his riches, to his pleasures, to women. Ecclesiastes chronicles Solomon's uh, attempts to find happiness and contentment through the things that this world offers and its pleasures and how he failed. Solomon's legacy did not end well. He could not be the one God promised to David. There would have to be another. Further down the line, And so as his son, Rehoboam, ascends the throne, there's a lot of expectation again. Would he be the one? Would he be like David, but better? Would he succeed where Solomon failed? Would he be the eternal king? What would define his reign? And that's where our passage picks up. No sooner does he become king than the people cried out to him because because Solomon's reign had been characterized by one ambitious building project after another. It wasn't just the temple. It was his palace. It It was the hanging gardens for his wife and on and on. And the people were tired. They were worn out. And they cried out for help. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. It's not the first time God's people have cried out for help under onerous labor demands. Can you hear the echoes of what Isaac's been preaching through in Exodus? How Israel, under the rule of Pharaoh, cried out for relief from those building projects, those ambitious building projects. They cried out and their God heard them. And he raised up Moses to to go and, and to seek relief. And do you remember Moses, what he asked for? He says, give us three days to go out into the wilderness and to worship our God. That was the request. Doesn't seem... Crazy. And it's echoed here as as the people come again, but this time not to a foreign ruler, not to an Egyptian king, but to a Hebrew king in their own land. And you'd expect compassion, you'd expect relief, a sympathetic ear, and an easy decision, but that's not what they got. Rehoboam needed some time And with yet another echo to the episode in Egypt, he sends them away for three days while he consults his advisors. First, he took counsel with his father's advisors, the fathers of Israel, those who have been around, those who have the wisdom of age. And their counsel was as inspiring as it it was wise. He says, They say to him, if you would be a servant to your people, if you would serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer, they will be your servants. You will have their hearts. They will see your love, your compassion, and they will be your people. If you would be a servant, if you would serve, if if you would honor your God, then behave like your God. Lighten their load. 
Serve them with kindness. So show them mercy and grace. The very mercy and grace that your God showed to them in the days of Pharaoh. And then you will be exalted. Then you will be great. But Rehoboam was young, ambitious, and insecure. He wanted to be feared, admired, and to be seen as powerful. And the wisdom of the fathers wasn't what he wanted to hear. So he turned to the young men with whom he had grown up. You can almost predict how they would respond. It's the way most youth would respond when suddenly given unlimited power. They told him to say, my finger is is thicker than my father's thigh. Whereas my father weighed on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And so that's what Rehoboam told the people when they returned on the third day. His response, it it oozes with with insecurity and bravado and self-service. He wants to be seen as strong and thinks that the way to make himself feel powerful is is to make others suffer. He's rough, he's proud, he's haughty. And his response is really no different than that of Pharaoh in the days of Moses. And in some ways it's worse. Because at least Pharaoh just disciplined them with whips. Rehoboam says he'll use scorpions. Scorpions are poisonous. There's something sinister in that statement. As if he delights in their pain. God's response was swift and it was severe. No sooner had Rehoboam spoken these words than God scattered the people. They fled seeking refuge from this tyrant that was worse than Pharaoh. God stripped 10 out of the 12 tribes from him and left him with a mere fraction of the kingdom he had inherited just days earlier. And that fraction was only spared for the sake of his grandfather, David. Far from building an eternal kingdom, he managed to destroy the one he had been given just three short days earlier. David's kingdom was on the brink of annihilation. All because of this king's unwillingness to listen to the wisdom of the fathers. His unwillingness to humble himself and serve those whom he ruled. His unwillingness to ease their burden and to lighten their yoke. You see, God's removal of the kingdom from him was God's verdict on his rule, his leadership. It was his judgment. 
and his condemnation, those three days defined Rehoboam's reign and rule. It was an utter, complete, total, and absolute failure. The promise to David wasn't fulfilled in Solomon. It wasn't fulfilled in Rehoboam. The people would have to wait for another. About a thousand years later, when Jesus came into this world, the people were still waiting. He was a descendant of David. And the question is, would he be the one? Would he be like David, but better? Would he succeed where Solomon and Rehoboam and a host of others had failed? Would he be the eternal king? What would define his rule, his reign? In many ways, he is the opposite of Rehoboam except for one significant way in which the two are very, very similar. Because he too had a choice to make to whom he would listen. Like like Rehoboam, the wisdom that he received not just from the fathers, but from the father himself, the heavenly father, was to serve those over whom he had been given authority, to serve his people. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. He said this, For this reason the father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And then he says this, this charge, this command, this instruction I received from my father. This is what my father told me to do. Go and give your life for the people. Serve them. The heavenly father sent Jesus into this world not to be served, but to serve He sent him to ease the people's burden, to lighten their yoke, and to give them rest. Jesus freely admitted, this was was the counsel that I was given by the Father. And he even told his disciples that he would lay his life down, that he would have to lay it down for them, and that he would take it up on the third day. And like the young peers of Rehoboam, the disciples rejected the council. They rejected the idea. His peers even rebuked him for entertaining the idea of following that council. Peter said, Lord, may it never be. That was not their idea of a king, a ruler. Their council is never bow, never serve, make others bow to you. That's their council. And the question Jesus faced was the same Rehoboam faced. Would he listen to the Father or to his peers? And his response to the disciples' idea of leadership was this. That's how the pagan rulers rule. They lord their authority over others. And that's not God's way. Jesus says, if you want to be truly great, serve. So he went to the very place where they wanted to kill him because that's what it would take to deliver his people. He had to go and he had to suffer the death they served. Like Rehoboam, 
He didn't flee to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem because that's where they waited for him. He had to go and suffer the very death his people deserved. He had to be enslaved for them. He had to be bound. He had to suffer judgment. All so that he could deliver his people from judgment, from slavery, and give them eternal life. And and so there at the cross of Calvary, he wasn't just whipped, but he bore the the sting of the scorpion. He, He suffered death. And there he remained for three days. For three days he served his people in death. For three days, he suffered so that his people wouldn't have to. For three days, he was a servant to them in an unimaginable way. And those three days defined his rule, they defined his reign, and they defined his kingdom. He is a man after God's own heart. He's not simply like the God of Israel who delivered his people out of Egypt. He is the God of Israel who delivered his people out of Egypt. Come in the flesh. Come to free them from slavery. Not to Egyptian leaders, not to Roman leaders, not even to to Hebrew leaders like Rehoboam, but but to free them from sin and to free them from death. He's the king that God promised would come from David. He's the king we needed. An eternal king always offering refuge to any who want relief from tyranny to sin. And his resurrection on the third day was the father's verdict. This one is worthy. This is the king you've been waiting for. He is better than David, and he's better than Solomon, and he's better than Rehoboam. Those three days defined Jesus' reign and rule. He was a complete, total, absolute, and utter success. The promise to David had finally been fulfilled. And his promise is this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That promise was true the day Jesus rose from the grave and that problem, that promise is true today. And it's made visible for us in, in the Lord's Supper. In the bread and in the wine, we have a visible picture of, of what our Lord did on the cross. The, the fact that this table is our Lord's table reminds us that, that we have a Lord who serves his people. And in using bread and wine to represent his body and blood, we are reminded that his body is no longer on this earth. Search all you want and you will not find it. 
because his tomb is empty. He rose again and he ascended to his father's side and he is still serving us by preparing a home for us. And so the Lord invites to this table those who are able to recognize true greatness. Not boasting in earthly power and delighting in the mistreatment of others, but a, a king who's willing to put others first, even before himself, and serve them. This table is for those who recognize Jesus to be the king of kings, who is lowly and gentle, and who gives rest to the weary. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God and King this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, you know us. You know our insecurities. How we worry about what others think and how we want to be seen as powerful, as strong, and as anything but weak. And so we don't always know what to do with a king who is gentle and lowly, who chooses to serve rather than be served, who eases the burden of his people. But we do recognize greatness and we marvel and we gladly surrender and we gladly submit to the king of kings. We recognize the name above all names. Help us to find our rest in Jesus. Help us to love and to serve others even as we have been loved and been served by Jesus Christ. May his name be exalted. Amen.